question mark. Thomas Jefferson said this in 1781. He said this, Indeed, I tremble for my country. Listen to that. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect or when I understand or when I recall the righteousness of God, that God is just and that His justice cannot sleep forever. This was an expert taken out of his diaries regarding the state of Virginia when he went down there in 1781 and studied the mannerism of that country or that state in his own state. 1781, just outside of a birthing of a nation, seeing his nation now and going back to enslaving his fellow man. His culture, his people who just left slavery from England, has now embarked on a new way of living and putting slavery upon his fellow man. He saw that. He saw the intensity of it. And he was stricken in his heart by it. This was in 1871, how he saw people mistreated because of their color, because of the greed of man. And here they just came out of being free from Great Britain. And here they enter into slavery themselves by putting man into their fellow man into a state of slavery. Listen to that heart. Indeed, indeed I tremble for my country. For my country. This is a time where godliness was supposed to be there. This is a time where a nation says we are God set free. We're a nation made by God. A nation under God. A nation blessed by God. 1781. It reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. You remember his task? You remember what he was given? You remember what God called him to do? He said, go cry in the streets and lament for my nation, for my country, for your country, for your people who have backslidden, who no longer, re- re- no longer regard me as their Lord. That's what he told Jeremiah to do. But he said, cry and lament in the streets. He was a street preacher, by the way. And he was supposed to go in the inner streets of Jerusalem and cry and lament God's message to a people who have backslidden, a people who have been, become selfish in nature and who have defied God. He said, go cry and show them my heart. Go cry and show them my tears. I wonder if we lament and we cry over our nation who has backslidden. You know, it's sad. This was in 1871. This is a black eye we can't, we can't live out. It'll be with us forever. So many things catapulted from that point. So many things in our nation. And we're trying to move forward. But Jefferson said, Indeed, I tremble for my country. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray you pour out your Holy Spirit on every heart and mind here today. Lord, I pray you pour out your Holy Spirit on the hearts that hurt, the hearts that are struggling, the hearts that are rejoicing the hearts that are sick, the hearts that are backslidden, the hearts that are confused, the hearts that are tormented, 
you know exactly what every heart and mind that came here today needs. So I pray you would bring in your Holy Spirit and pour upon them each one regarding specifically the manner in which way you desire to speak to them. I pray you would speak today, that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you would lead us to Jesus today to show us how much you truly love us and what it means to abide in Jesus. Thank you. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now understand that this this isn't an end times book. This isn't an end times book at all. But it is one of, probably one of Paul's last letters that he wrote. In the last times in his prison before he went to death. And here he writes to old, the, the young pastor Timothy who has taken on the burden to pastor a church in Ephesus. And we know all about the church in Ephesus, right? They were the church in chapter 2 of Revelation who became the loveless church. But God loved them so much to give them the message and say, hey, go back to your first love. But the pastor of this church during this time right here, when, when uh, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, was Timothy. He was taking on this very, very important task of leading God's people and teaching him the truth. But the thing was, is Paul, or Paul knew the heart of Timothy. He wanted to do right. He wanted to do the right thing. But he was captivated by what? What was he captivated by? Fear. Fear. Taking on this monumental task as a young fellow. Up against the lions. Now having to be and answer the calling of God as a pastor. But what does he say to Timothy in the first chapter? He says this. Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. He said, don't worry about these things, Timothy. Stir up the gift of God that God has given you, that power. Because God has given you a purpose and continue to endure. Because as a Christian soldier, once you enlist in the army of God, you are going to experience difficulties in your life, whether you like it or not. It is not all peaches and creams. The flowers aren't always roses. Stuff happens. It's a part of sanctification. It's a part of life. It's a part of who we are in Christ. But there is a hope. There is an anchor that is stronger than yourself. And that's what Paul's trying to tell Timothy. Look at what he says in chapter 3. Look at what he says in chapter 3. This is the first element. Understand the times. Chapter 3, verse 1. But know this. But know this. Understand, Timothy. But know this. That word know is the word gnosko in the Greek. It means to experience by going through it. Know with a knowledge and understanding. Get that knowledge and understanding from truth that you study. Know the scriptures. Know the foundation of the truth. Know why this is happening. And don't freak out. That's why he's saying that. But know this. But know this. First element, understand the times. Gnosko. We have to know the times. 
of where we're at. I know a lot of us don't want to look at it. You don't want to look at the news. You don't want to look at all the bad stuff going around. And you want to stay in this geographical shell that you're in and say nothing bad is happening. But it is happening. It's happening outside all around you. A lot of this stuff is just geographical in the the grand scheme of things. We are protected from a lot of it, especially living on this mountain. But there are bad parts on this mountain, let me tell you. I came from one of them. A place that used to be called Enchanted is no longer Enchanted anymore. I love that place, but you go down there, it's sad. I grew up there in the 70s. My father planted us there. Stuff is changing, stuff is getting worse. But know this, Gnosko, you have to know it. You have to understand, this is supposed to happen. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 3. But know this, comma, that in the last days, that in the last days. What are the last days, by the way? Are we in the last days? Of course we are. When did that happen? Acts chapter 2, right? When Peter preached that message, that fiery message on Pentecost, wasn't it? That's when it happened. He quoted right out of the scriptures of Joel. In the last days, the Lord will pour out his spirit on his people. And that would just happen. The church just started in chapter two. The birth of the church was the beginning of the last days and we are all in it. But notice back in 60 AD, when Paul probably wrote this, he's warning, he's warning Timothy of that, that the times are going to get worse in the last days. So if it was supposed to get worse back then, and you look at history and where we're at now, it's going to get even worse. But where are we at? Where are you at? What are you doing? Where are we at? But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times. Look at what he says there. Perilous times. In other words, the word in the Greek means this. Kelapas. Kelapas. It means times of stress, times of stress, times of difficulty that are hard to bear. They're troublous and dangerous. It really means like this, a calamity on all levels, environmental, economical, and social. It's The word's only used twice in the Bible. The other time it's used is when Jesus takes his boys across the Sea of Galilee to meet the, the man in the tombs. Perilous times were in that area. That word was used. Because he would not let people cross. Because he had a demon inside. Only two times that word is used and Paul uses it right here. Perilous times, times of stress, calamity on all levels, environmental, economical and social. And we can see that, can't we? And like I said, a lot of this stuff is geographical in nature. It might just not be in our little bubble on the mountain, but it's happening in in South Los Angeles. It's happening in Sacramento. It's happening in central, uh, central California. It's happening across the Midwest with all the farms. It's happening in Dallas. Now it's happening on what? Uh, uh, Christians are being persecuted in the church. They're being shot at. This year, all that stuff is starting to rise. Perilous times are coming. Times of stress. Kelapas. A time where the truth and godliness become less popular. I mean, when you look around, it's not popular to be a Christian today. If it is, you're just using the name to be a part of a social gathering. And I hope that is not true of you today.
Perilous times are coming. Suffering as a Christian, like I said, it's, getting, it's rising in the United States. We are pretty shielded from that, though. We don't see that type of persecution that the rest of the world gets for being a Christian by Muslims. Basically, Satan, who wants to destroy every one of us. We might see it on a broader level, on a, on a much magna, magnanimous level as far as like planes going into our country and destroying our buildings. But now it's happening on individually. Now it's happening where, where, where they are harassing you now as a Christian. What do I mean by harassing? Social media, verbally, even in the local government. I got an email months ago. It came across my, my desk because uh, I work for the local government about a fire chief in Atlanta who God had given him, put in his heart to write a book about biblical morality. Understand this. Understand the way the city hierarchy, city government works. The fire chief's boss, he's not the boss of the fire chief. He's not the boss of that city, Atlanta. The boss is the board, the city council, the mayor. Okay, so he answers to someone. So does the fire chief, or excuse me, the police chief. They get their direction. They get their marching orders from the city council, from the mayor. Okay, that's who they get their direction from. They try everything in their heart to do what's right and to balance that budget and to make it work for the people. But this guy asked permission to write a book and the council granted him that permission. But one one city council member found that book and started to read the content of that book. He fired him. Why? Because he was writing about biblical morality versus what the secular morality says. It had all to do with homosexuality. It had all to do with perversion. It had all to do with sex before marriage. It had all to do with sex outside of marriage. All the stuff that us Christians already know about. But he was proclaiming truth on how society should function and how why God put that there to protect the society from destroying itself. But the city council member could not bear that kind of truth. In other words, he just fired him. He was persecuted. On that kind of level. It's pretty hard when it hits the pocketbook like that finances for that guy. I know that. If that was to happen to me, that would be detrimental. He was quoted saying, you know what? The very faith that gave me the desire to be a fire chief when I was a young kid, they used that faith to kick me out. That's what he was quoted saying. He's in court today still trying to get his job back. They don't know what to do with that. This is going to be on the rise. Perilous times are coming. Times of stress. Economically, socially, environmentally, it's going to happen. What are you going to do? Where are you at with that? How are you going to handle that? How are you going to live? Where are you at right now with it? It's an also a time called in the Bible in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. It's also called the spirit of Antichrist. What do you mean the spirit of Antichrist? What are you talking about? 
Here's what it says, verse 3 in chapter 4. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is present today. Denying the existence of Jesus Christ. Denying the existence of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Denying that it all happened. The spirit of Antichrist. It's here. He's birthing somewhere. I don't know who it is. It doesn't matter. Please don't get caught up on the fact of trying to find out who this, the Antichrist is. Now, I have a good idea it might be coming out of the European Union, but I don't know for a fact. The spirit of Antichrist is running wild in that place. Their whole motive, is the European Union, is this. Many tongues, one voice. Where have we heard that spirit before? Chapter 10 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Look at all the museums that they're putting over there in Europe and Berlin. They're bringing Babylon over into Berlin. The seat of Zeus. They got a museum there. They have a monument of a beast with a woman riding it. I don't know what's going on. But the perilous times are coming. The spirit of Antichrist is here. And Paul says, know this, gnosko, understand this, realize this. Consider where you're at. Stir up the gift that God gave you. Not of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We just sung about I will fear no evil, for I know that God is with me. Did you sing that song? That's truth. It don't matter what happens to the Christian. They, can't, they can take the body, they can mutilate the body, they can do whatever, they can take our money, they can do this and that, but they can't take your soul, they can't take your heart. Unless you let them. That's where Jefferson was at with his people. He's like, man... This is, he, this is how he wrote, yeah, he, I'm, uh, I'm dumbifying his, because English language back then was way lofty. But basically he's saying, uh, us having slavery right now is going to cause us to have a black eye in history. That's what he said in his memoirs of that, of the state of Virginia, uh, analyzing their manners or their customs. Just before his presidency. Where are we at? What are you doing with this stuff? Do you know? Do you understand? Let's move on. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men, for men. In other words, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. It's a foregone conclusion, right? I'm telling you, because it's going to happen. For men... Four men, not four men, F-O-R, four men will be lovers of themselves. A time where a man defines himself by his own value of truth and therefore it becomes a lifestyle and truth rooted in pride, arrogance, and lust. Isn't that right out of chapter 2 of First uh, John? Yes, pride, arrogance, and lust. We have become, you know, when you look at society today, and it's so awesome with the technology we have. My youngest son, he is so 
fascinated with the technology. He's always telling me all this great stuff about it. And, and I love it. But we have so much of it, don't we? And it occupies our hearts and minds, doesn't it? I mean, how, I mean, you've, you've heard of the head down generation? What is that? They're on their phones like this. They're occupied by technology. This technology was, was created for a specific purpose. At least that's what the creator had in mind. He did not like say, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to create something that's going to make everybody, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm going to make everybody selfish because I want to buy it and they can't live without it. I mean, you think back at the time when we didn't even have iPhones. Now, everybody has one. If you don't have one, you're an outcast. My kids are going, Dad, this guy has one. This guy has one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's too much information that is available at the fingertips of man, which technology that was supposed to be created for good has caused man to be what? Selfish. That's where we're at today. For the most part, when you look around, especially on social media, you look on the news, it's all about that stuff, man. The media, you can't believe anything they say. You don't know what's right from wrong. You got to watch both sides. I mean, if you're watching this stuff, you got to watch both sides. You got to get both sides of the stuff and pray. You don't know what they're talking about. And then I challenge you to go read foreign policy news in the, Euro- in the, in the European side of stuff. Go read that. And then go read Israeli Today. All kinds of stuff, all kinds of information at the tip of our hands. Technology, which has led man down the road of selfishness. Look at this. That word, the lover, that, that, that means the lovers of themselves, because that's what he said. For men will be lovers of themselves. Men will be lovers of themselves. And the Greek word, it means philautas. And I'm not talking about a Mexican dinner. It means to be too intent on one's own interests to the point you've become selfish. Listen to that. It means to be so intent on your own interests that you disregard your wife, your kids, your job. I mean, maybe you're into your job. Whatever the case might be, it's all about you. It's all about the father. And I'm picking on the father. I'm sorry. But that is the head of the household. That's where it starts. It starts there. He set the temple. Men will be lovers of themselves. They will destroy their families. They will destroy their marriages. Why? Because they're flautas. Selfish. Lovers of themselves. Now I don't leave the women out either. It's both men and women. But again, when I'm talking to families, that's where it begins because Paul goes right into that later on. He's warning Timothy of this is the, 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 the external stuff that's happening outside of the church that's going to come inside of the church, pal. So you got to be ready. You got to know that this is going to happen. Don't freak out when you get someone in the pew. Watch them. For there will be men who are lovers of themselves. But look at the root of what happens when you're a lover of yourself. Look at what happens when you become selfish. Look at what happens here. 
Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Okay, they're just, they, they, they just against everything either the wife or the husband has to say about Christ in the family. Everything. They don't want anything to do with it. Blasphemers. Denying the truth. Be lovers of money, boasters, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Man, you see this on the rise to the key. I know when it's bad when my own kids tell me, Dad, something wrong there. I mean, my kids, I love my kids, but they're not the best. But you know what? When they realize something, that's telling me, hey, something's going on here. But when did all this start? I'm sure it's happening back in Paul's day. But it probably was less prevalent, wasn't it? You know, to the Jew, I mean, if you had a disobedient kid, it's all over, folks. You go pull the law out and get some stones and it's all over. It ain't happening. We see, we saw a lot of it in history, didn't we? In the 50s. It came back from after the war. All those soldiers who came back from the war had a huge influence on the younger generation. They started taking what? Christ out of everything. I don't know, maybe it happened when they started taking Bibles out of certain schools or singing the hymns in the morning before you used to start school. Remember, I remember when I was a kindergartner. I, I loved, I, I grew up down in VOE and, and I went to Valley of Enchantment School down there. And my, the only thing I remember about kindergarten is my VOE, or my kindergarten teacher. She loved the Lord with all her heart, mind and soul. And we used to sing the battle hymn of Republic before we started school. And we'd sing the Pledge of Allegiance and she'd put that hymn on and she was singing, crying over there in tears. And I had no idea why, but that's, she just loved Jesus. Go and read those words. That's about Christians. That's what they used to sing. You can't even do that now. I know school teachers that, that, that are in this church that cannot go even talk about Jesus in their classroom. They have to wait for a student to come up, but yet they can have little organizations or whatever going on. But it is so bad. You can't do that stuff. You can't tell them this is absolute truth. <gasps> no way. But that's where all the disobedience starts. I mean, if you look at the, 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 the baby boom generation or the, the, all the hippies coming out of that in the 60s, what happened? That was bad. I used to think that was really good and I wanted to be a part of that. You know, following the Grateful Dead, trying to emulate that kind of stuff, bringing it back to life. No way. There's no root of Jesus in there. It's all the root of Satan. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, verse 3. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control. Brutal, brutal, and despisers of good. Brutal. And because I'm in the uh, uh, safety arena uh, for, for, for my community, and I, I get to work with uh, community uh, you know, firemen and police, that kind of thing, I hear of all the stuff that goes on, especially in Victorville. The high desert is horrible. It's bad with the brutality that's going up there with the killings. Some of those sheriffs can't even talk about what they went on because it was so horrific. 
I mean, you talk about all the road rage. Oh yeah, that's funny. Yeah, whatever. But you know, when people actually run other vehicles off the side, get out of the vehicle and shank that other driver and then take off and leave them for dead there for an EMS worker and a cop to pick them up. That's bad. That's brutal. That's what brutality is. That's how bad man can get. Okay, that's what Paul's warning Timothy. This is going to happen. Don't freak out. This is evil, yes, but we just sung about how to deal with this. I know this is not a popular message, and I'm sorry, I can see it on some of your faces, but there is hope. There is hope. Verse 4, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is the opposite of lovers of themselves. They have no evidence of an intimate relationship with God the Father, with Jesus Christ, that can radically change the heart. There's no evidence. Look at what he goes on and he says here, for, or excuse me, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away, exclamation point. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, they have this form that they are all religious, but they have, they don't believe in it until the to the fact where it changes the inside of them. Where they have a radical change and you can see it in their lifestyle and the way they live and the way they treat other people and the way they handle times of stress and perilous times. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. <clears throat> Verse 6, For of this sort... So now he's warning, hey, these guys, they're like this. For of this sort, these kind of guys, these kind of people, this is what's going to happen. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. The only way to prevent that is to stay strong in Christ and fight for your marriage. That's it. Because guess what, men? If you've done something to, to, to cause this kind of a, a rejection in your wife where she feels weighed down by the, by, by the troubles of your marriage, she is going to feel gullible. She is going to feel vulnerable and something will happen. Guarantee it. The only way to prevent it is to stay strong in the marriage and to fight for it. Even when it comes, the attacks are going to come in your marriage. You know it. If you're a Christian and you're professing Jesus Christ in your marriage, you're going to get attacked. I get attacked all the time. I hate it. But it happens. You have to fight. You have to abide. Verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never come to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, we can actually sit in here and always learn and never receive Jesus. Do you know that? That's a sad state of affairs when that happens to someone in this place. I pray that that is not evident here in this church. I pray. Verse 8. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do also these resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. Now he gives an example of the resistance of these two musicians. 
You know, in Exodus, uh, we're never given the names, but Paul must have had some clue, right? So, so he, he gives the example of those magicians and how they resisted the truth. Because the word literally means this. It literally means trying to prove that God is weak or non-existent. That's what it means. And he gives the example to, to, to back up that word. He says, you remember those guys? They were trying to, they were trying to do the same thing. Every time, uh, 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 Moses did something, they say, see, we can do that too. See, we can do that too. See, we can do that too. Until that one point that they were no longer able to stand against the truth. And what did God do? This is horrible. Because in the, the Hebrew, he, you know, it, it says that God poured out boils on all the Egyptians and, and also those two magicians. Those boils in the Hebrew were called elephantisis. Those guys could not stand. They were reduced down to nothing. Now, that should say, awesome, that you have a God like that, that he cannot be defied, that he cannot be shown that he is weak and that he does not exist. No matter what this world throws at us, the truth will always stand, the truth will always prevail, and God will always have the last stand. That's what Paul's telling him. He said, hey, you know what? Know all this. The, these crazy times are going to come, but know this. Look at what he says the rest of the way. But they will pro- progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as there also was. In other words, they're going to be known and they're going to be destroyed. There's no hope for those guys. There's no hope for that evil, that kind of evil. They have gone to the point where their heart is so hardened that they no longer are going to receive the Lord, no matter what the Lord shows them. I mean, can you imagine going through that time in Exodus and seeing all those plagues play out and still reject the Lord God of Israel? I think God is showing us something. How he judges, he's going to, like he judged back then, that same type of spirit, that same type of atmosphere is going to happen all the way through time. He never changes. Circumstances, times of events, all that technology will change and increase, but the judgment of God will come. Where are we at? Where are you at? What are you going to do with all this information that you have now? Paul said in the beginning of this chapter he said know this so we better understand this it's going to get worse before it gets better it's going to get worse before it gets better and he's not the only one who said it john says it in revelation john says it in first john peter says it in his epistle jude says it in his epistle and even our lord said it It's going to happen. But they always, you know what? Even in the Old Testament, when God, in Jeremiah, when God told them, go go, go tell them this judgment that's going to happen. But also tell them, you know what? Come back to me. Tell them to repent because I will take them back with loving arms anytime. He always has that. He always. But then there's going to be a time where that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Romans 9, please turn there.
Second element. Look at Israel. Look at Israel. When we look at Israel today nationally, when we look at them on the news, whatever you want to do and however you want to look at it, God's hand, you cannot, you cannot (laughs) see the truth that God's hand is on Israel. His protection is there. I said Romans chapter 9. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11. I probably threw the last people off, way off, didn't I? You guys are going, whoa. I'm so sorry. Last last uh, um, service, I told him Romans chapter 9. I don't know why. I'm sorry. I'm Romans chapter 11. <laughs> but when you look at Israel nationally, you look at them from the birth of the nation, 1948, May 14th, when they become a nation, right? When they survived the Holocaust, God took them out of that, okay? And when the United States was a big key player during that moment, and they put them back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, gave them a nation again. It's awesome. Beautiful. Loving it. From that point, up until 1967 in the June War, six days, the uh, Muslim coalition came against them. What? Trying to take back Jerusalem. didn't happen. Six-day war, Israel was victory, victorious. Even today, they still cannot take the, the land of Israel from them. They are trying so hard. They are trying to prevent Israel from being a nation. They are trying to prevent Israel's Messiah from coming back. They are trying to do everything they can to prevent that from happening. All the Muslim nations there. It's, I mean, we, I mean, we got it made. We don't have people all around us that try and want to kill us, but they do. But yet they live in peace. They live in peace and they prosper. They're one of the, 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 the their, their agricultural is one of the highest productions out of that country. The fruit that comes out of that place, the technology advancement is way above us. The medicine and then the military force that they have, They've just said they bought uh, five more F-35s, which is one of the top fighter planes on on the market right now. And they're able to withstand their enemy. And they still hold true today. God still loves Israel. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Remember, back to chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. And he says this in such the rabbinical style teaching that he does. In other words, it's a rhetorical question. Does God really, is God really going to cast away his chosen people? And he says, certainly not. What that really means is God forbid that you even think that. That's what it means in the, in the Greek. Don't even consider that, that the church has replaced Israel. No, you two are a plan of God's salvation. God would never cast away His people. He's got a sovereign plan for them. Look at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Verse 2, God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God saying against, against Israel saying, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left. And they seek my life, verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? Elijah, I have received, reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. In other words, according to the way I save people now. Not all this predestination stuff. Don't get caught up on all that stuff. The sovereignty of God is so awesome and so beautiful and so remarkable, yet He is the controller of all historical events and everything that happens in the universe and everything that happens in your life, but He allows one certain thing and it's called free will. I don't understand it. How can you be so sovereign and allow us to choose you, Lord? It's like both Calvin and the Armenians are right. God chose us and we chose Him. God is sovereign and His desire is to save Israel. And right now there is a remnant that's saved. Even in Paul's day there was a remnant. He was part of it. So he's trying to bring home the fact and saying, you know what? God has not cast away His people. He's got a plan for us. He's got a remarkable plan for us. Verse 8. Or excuse me, verse 6, And if by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is not of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. So in other words, God has given them a spirit of blindness so they cannot see the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Can you turn on the fans, please, Steve? Thank you. He's put them in this spot for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. And understand the crisis today. Understand the crisis today. Just this month in this in, in Israel, your president on December 7th, 2017, your president, President Trump, declared, declared Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Yes, amen. He did that. And man, the Palestinian authority was riled up. Riled up. After that proclamation, you know what? Before that proclamation even happened. Because you know what? I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know if you guys noticed old Trump. And you know what? I want to be honest. I was afraid to vote for him. But God said, you need to vote for him, pal. He's the only one left. And he's going to be for the people. He does what he says. And isn't that what he does? He does what he says he's going to do. And he said he was going to do that. And there was an evangelical pastor that came to him and said, Hey boss, you better do this now before the end of the year. Why? Because it's the year of the Jews' jubilee. What's jubilee? 50 years. Go to the book of Leviticus in chapter 24. It'll tell you all about it. 50 years of what? 
50 years from the June War 1967. You got to do this now. Oh man, that was victory. And then on top of it, then he goes, and by the way, we're also going to put our embassy in Jerusalem, back in Jerusalem. We're moving it from Tel Aviv and going back to Jerusalem. Awesome! So guess what? The UN Security Council says, no way, you can't do that, boss. There's 15 members of the UN Security Council. We, the United States, are of the five permanent members. That means the five permanent members of the UN Security Council has the power to veto a vote no matter how many votes are in favor for it. If there is one veto and that's the five members voted that veto, one of them, can't pass that resolution. Palestinian Authority tried to get a, 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 a resolution to reject and come against the very statement made by President Trump and to put the, 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 the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. Can't do that. 15 out of 15 of the members of the, the U.N. Security Council, 14 voted for the resolution and one, one country didn't and that was the United States. I need you to understand there's five global powers that are in the United Nations Security Council. And that United Nation was divided, or, or, or their main objective for existence was what? To protect sovereignty or to protect international peace and security throughout the world. To prevent World War II from ever happening ever again. Since 2012, there's been 89 resolutions against war crimes against other countries who've, who, who've tried to, 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 to come against that, this inter, international security and peace. Well, guess what? 70 of those revolution, or, uh, resolutions are against who? Israel. Really? Who's got their hand on Israel? Who's got their hand on Israel? That second element, look to Israel. So after all that happened, after all that chaos, and President Trump does it in the year of, of Jubilee, it was such a beautiful thing. But why? You know, I just want to bring it to your attention one more time. The five powers, those, those five permanent members, is China. These are the people who voted against this. China, or voted for it. China, Russia, France, and Great Britain. Okay? A couple of those guys, we thought we were allies. Interesting stuff going on. Why is this so important? Why do I care about it? Why am I telling you? Because this sets up God's plan. There's three things in God's plan. Okay, one of it was, was to provoke the, 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 the Israel to jealousy. Well, who's he using to do that? You guys. Look at verse 11. I say then, I have, I, have they stumbled that they should not fall or that they should fall? Here he says, God forbid you say that. Don't say that. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, that is the foundation of it. What that means is your love should be so radical, so changed. You should be there for Israel. Israel will look at you and go, I want that. God, our God loves them like that. I want that. What, what, they can pray without using a, a prayer book. They can pray anywhere, anywhere. They can read the Bible for themselves. I want that. That's 
how he's speaking here to provoke Jews to jealousy like that, to say, man, I want that kind of relationship. And man, it seems like you and God are friends. The way you guys pray, the way you talked about him. That's what I want. That's the kind of jealousy. There's three plans, though, in this sovereign plan. There's three plans. The first is the Davidic covenant. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised David there will always be a king on the throne of Israel. Always. Is there a king on the throne of Israel today? Is Israel reigning and ruling today? No. There is no king. Who's supposed to come? Jesus. If he doesn't come, God lied to David. And I don't say that disrespectively. What I'm trying to say is, it's going to happen. The Davidic covenant, you cannot forget about that. Chapter 2, verse, or chapter 2, or excuse me, 2 Samuel, chapter 7. God blesses David, blesses his socks off. He's saying, you mean you chose me and there's always going to be a king out of the throne coming from my loins? You betcha. Even to the end. King Jesus, the Davidic covenant. It happened. He came once as a peaceful king. He's coming again as a ruler to take his place back. The second part, the second part is the Gog and Magog war. What's that, Mike? That's right out of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. I'm sorry, I can't, I don't have enough time to go through that and tell those those chapters. It's a beautiful, beautiful text that I, I encourage you guys to read. Actually go read the entire book. Because the entire theme of that book is this. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. What do you think he's trying to get across to his people Israel? What do you think he's trying to get across to all the nations of the world? Because it has to do with them as well. But that war has not happened. It has not happened. Gog who is the prince or leader of Magog. Magog is a land. Gog is a prince. It says right in there, he's the prince of Rosh. Some Bible scholars define that or uh, uh, now because of the knowledge that's increased and of the changes of the land and the names change of those, of, of, of those families that, that inherited those lands, those cultures, it's changed, but it's come to the fact that we, most Bible scholars believe that to be the leader of Russia. But if you look at those names in there, those old ancient names that come out of the, the table of Genesis out of chapter 10, those come right out of the loins of, 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 of the boys of Noah. And those names that are geographically put by God, put them there, allowed them to inhabit the lands. What happens in those ancient times? Those names change, don't they? The country's names change. Well, just like he's saying in there, well, those countries that he named in there out of the table of nations have chained to this. Turkey, Syria, Russia, Sudan, Libya. Okay, those are five countries that are supposed to come against Israel. And they're all set up right there. Right now, currently in Syria, Syria on the southern borders of Syria, right next to Israel, because those countries in Syria are fighting who? ISIS, the rebellion, right? But who's leading those, the, the three armies that are in there with Syria? There's Turkey and there's who else? Russia. And aren't they the leader of the entire coalition in that north? They all look to who and they answer to who? 
Putin. He's in control. Ezekiel 38 is coming alive. That's why this is all important. God is setting all this stuff up to to, to bring about His perfect plan of salvation. And understand that. It's all about salvation. It isn't about destroying. God does not desire to destroy people. That's not His nature. His nature is salvation. If you know the morality or the righteousness of God, if you read the book of Romans, because that's what defines the reality or the morality of God, is the book of Romans, you read that and you understand that his whole desire the whole time was that humankind, mankind would know him and and rejoice with him. But there's this little thing called sin. And there's this little thing called free will. And he does not want us to be robots going around going, I love God, praise Jesus. You know, he wants you to be real. He wants you to be passionate. He wants you to love your relatives, Israel. The third plan is this. I'm sorry, I'm rushing through this. Romans chapter 11, verse 24. For if you were cut out of the old olive tree, which is wild, or excuse me, do y'all go down to 25, wrong verse. 11.25, you there? For I do not desire, brethren, this is Paul speaking to the Romans, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So there's a period of time that we're in right now, the fullness of the Gentiles. This is the time for the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy, for God's Spirit to be poured on mankind, and to see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. This is the time of grace, the disposition of grace. Okay? That's the sovereignty of God. That's how awesome He is, and He's in control of all this stuff, and He does not allow something to happen until it's time. Because He wants every man and woman to be saved. He wants every one of us to come to the knowledge of truth but you have to choose Him. You have to realize the nature of how love, how deep His love, how majestic His love is. Here's that last plan. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel will be saved. That's what he's trying to do. That's why it's so important to look at Israel and see what's going on there right now. Because when we look at that stuff and the current events that is happening there today, you will see how close God is. You will see how sovereign God is, how awesome he is and how he orchestrates these plans of events. It blows your mind. It should, it should, it should make your re- the reality of your faith that much stronger, that much more passionate, that much more willing to want to go wherever He sends you despite the cost. I better watch out. With all this and how Israel wants to be saved, when you understand all this, with all the current events I just gave you, the nations cannot defeat, Satan cannot defeat the apple of God's eye. Yeah, that's what Israel is to God. That's what he calls them, the apple of God's eye. Don't get sad. Don't get mad. Well, what do you mean? I thought I was the apple of God's eye. 
I thought, I thought God loved me. He does love you. But you soon to forget in this chapter, we just didn't go over. Do you know God loves horticulture? What's horticulture? The science of planting fruits and vegetables. Isn't God a miraculous farmer? He goes through and he tells the, the Romans there that, that we Gentiles have been grafted in. And don't boast about your faith. Don't boast about the fact that you're saved and Israel's not. Understand that you have been grafted in. What does grafted in mean? It means where you take a branch from another wild tree and you put it into the stalk of the, of the natural tree and you cut a little, little, little vice in there and you put those two bran- the branch and the stalk into there and then what happens? Miraculously it grows together. And then what happens? From the root, you get all those nutrients that come up and that branch gets the blessing. And then what happens to that plant? It gets the fruit of that root. Now you understand the commonwealth that you get, what it explains in chapter 2 of Ephesians. You're a part of that. You're a part of that blessing. You've been grafted in as a, Jew, as a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black, yellow, a Mexican, Filipino, whatever the case might be, you're called a Gentile. Only two races in God's economy, Jew and Gentile. And you've been grafted in. Now you have family members. Now you have relatives and they're called Jews. You've been grafted in. You've been, you are now the apple of God's eye. But look at what he says about them in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. He says this. You don't have to go there. Just internalize this. Listen to this. This just blows my mind. He found in him, who? Israel. Who found him? God. Found in him a desert land. Who's he talking about? Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. I don't want to go too deep in that. He found in him a desert land and in him a wasteland, Israel a howling wilderness, and he encircled him, who? Israel. He instructed him, who? Israel. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Back in Deuteronomy, God was already, had this plan going on. I already saw you guys, and I wanted to make something out of you, but you rejected me. So now I'm going to use the Gentiles for a time to show you how much I love you. That's where we're at. That's where you're at. Where are you at with it? The third element, third element, abide in Jesus, abide in Jesus. Why abide in Jesus? Because the next prophetic season in your life, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're going or not, is the rapture. Well, when does that happen, Mike? I don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows. And it's for Him to know. Remember we talked about the sovereignty of the Lord? I have no idea. I don't want to be caught somewhere else being a lover of of myself when He comes back though. Abide in Jesus. Maybe the rapture comes just before Ezekiel's war starts. Or maybe during. Or maybe after. I don't know. That's why I'm saying, look at Israel. See what's going on over there. But abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. So the question really is where I'm at. To really answer that. Where, where are you at? With all this information I gave you. All this information, where are you at right now with it? What are you going to do with it? 
How does this impact your life now? How does this impact your marriage? How does this impact your job focus? How does this impact your relationships with your parents? How does this impact your relationship with one another? How does this impact your, your, your relationship with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with all this information? To accurately answer that question, to accurately answer that question, to know where you're at, you really have to know where you're supposed to be. Abide in Jesus. 1 John 2.28 After he speaks about the spirit of Antichrist, after he speaks about the the spirit of Antichrist coming into the churches, oh, they were from us, but ow, they went out from us. They were in here, but then they went out. And then they come back in. After he talks about all this stuff and about Jesus' coming, he says this, 1 John 2.28, he says, And now, little children... And now, this is a reoccurring theme for John in this, in this book. And now, little children, abide in Him. That when He appears, who appears? Jesus. When Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. That word abide is in the imperative tense. What does that mean? It means it's an extremely, extremely important command. It's extremely important that you understand this. And I'm very passionate, if you haven't, if you can't tell. And I'm not over passionatizing this word, if that's a word. I don't know if it's a word, honey, is it? Probably isn't. But the severity of this word and the meaning of it, he says it's very important that you abide in him. Stay with Jesus, remain in Jesus, no matter what happens, because without Jesus, you cannot make it through life. That's what he's saying. And you will be ashamed at his coming. I don't want to be there. I don't want to feel that ashamedness. I, I feel ashamed sometimes when I do things, you know, and it's like, ah, I don't want to. You imagine the shame when everybody's gone and you're left. Think about that. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. But I'm I'm hitting home. I'm hitting the heart. Because God wants your heart. He loves you that much. You're the apple of His eye. If He loves Israel that way, He certainly loves you that way. If He's willing to give His Son for you, then He certainly loves you. And you must understand. You must know. Paul, I started out this, this message with, but know this. Gnosko. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. You don't have to go there, but just listen. Jesus wept over his city. The closer he got to Jerusalem, he wept. And he wept because they did not know the hour of his visit, their visitation. The hour that would make for their peace. Don't miss the visitation we have right now. If you're sitting in here and you are not abiding in Jesus, abide in Him. Don't miss this visitation now because the next one, I don't think you're going to make it. It's going to be extremely hard. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. Lord, I pray this message of truth. I, I pray that you would use it in such a way to show how much you do love us, how much you do care for us, and how real you are, and how precious you see us. 
Lord, so everyone in here, Lord, that you had a message for, I pray that each one of those hearts that you had that message for, I pray your spirit would, would begin to work on them from this point on to bring that relationship so much more true, so much more real, so much more fruitful, so much more loving. That we would never, we, that we have confidence and continue to be praying and not be caught up with the things of this world. But know that we have a hope and an anchor for our soul. We thank you, Jesus.